God, your word is blessed, and it is a blessing to us. Through it you speak to us, and on it we stand. We pray that today you would open our minds and make our hearts to be fertile ground for the preaching and the sowing of the seed, the good news, that you are king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 103, starting in verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then we'll move over to Psalm 115, verses 1 to 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. The Lord's Prayer begins with a Godward focus. It begins with our Father who art in heaven. So we address a God who is near to us and who holds us dear to him as a Father, but we also address a God who is exalted above all things, who sits enthroned in the heavens. And so there is a way in which in the opening words to the prayer, we come to a great God and who has made us near and dear to him. And then as soon as we move from there, we go to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is an unmistakable element of worship and of praise in these opening words of the Lord's Prayer. And before we are allowed to move, so to speak, into asking for things for ourselves, even things like our daily bread, even things like the forgiveness of our sins, we have to enter through the gates of God's, pra uh, God's praise, so to speak. But then as the, as the Scripture begins, as Jesus begins by teaching us to have a Godward focus in the beginning of our prayer, so as we come to the end of our prayer, we end with, well, really, what do we end with? Because if you hop over to Matthew chapter 6, you see something which may be surprising to us. Read the entirety of the Lord's prayers the Lord taught us. It says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's it. Where'd the rest of it go? Or we know how it's supposed to end. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The, the Lord's prayer seems to go on as we remember it, as we pray it, beyond where Jesus ends it here. And Lest we think that he teaches it in Luke's gospel or somewhere else, Luke's gospel has an even more abbreviated, abbreviated ending to the Lord's Prayer. So why is it missing? Why is it missing? Why do we pray this and it's not present in the Scriptures? Well, that's a good question and it has a good answer. You know, the Lord didn't drop 
a golden Bible down from heaven for us in his own penmanship. I guess you could say the Ten Commandments were written by the hand of God, though we don't have those actually actual rocks or stones or tablets themselves. Instead, Peter tells us how the Scriptures came to us. He says this in 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Scriptures were written by real men in real places at real times with, we might say, real pens and real parchment or some other material. And even the latest of the scriptures which were written were written around the year 90 A.D. or about 1930 years ago. So what happened to those then? When those were written by men like Matthew and Mark, and Luke and John, how is it that, how is it that they, just, they just are there? How do we have a recorded copy of them? Well, you can imagine what the early church did when somebody like Matthew wrote a book. Matthew was one of the twelve. He's a follower of Jesus. He was eyewitness to the vast majority of Jesus' ministry. And if you were an early church member, if you were an early Christian, if somebody like Matthew, one of the disciples, writes down all of his recollections, or at least a lot of his recollections, about Jesus the Christ, things which he had seen with his own eyes. I mean, he has seen the Lord after he had risen again from the dead. If somebody like that writes down a book of the happenings, the sayings, the teachings, the doings, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord, you're going to want to have a copy of that for yourself. Or at least your church is going to want to have its own copy. And so as soon as it's written... Scribes begin to copy it. Some scribes are professional scribes and some are more amateurs. And so the, the book is copied and then copies are made of the copies and so on and so forth. And as time goes on, you have little changes that enter into the text. You have a word added here or a word dropped there, a word changed by accident here or a word that is misspelled there. And as copies go on, you see that these mistakes they increase over time and the text becomes we might say a little bit more corrupted and there are a lot of texts from the early new testament age in fact if you go back to the ancient world and you take all the little pieces or big pieces we found of the new testament you have about 24,000 pieces of the manuscripts which may sound impressive or it may not sound that impressive, but it is extremely impressive. This is far and away the most amount of evidence we have for any ancient writing. Just as an example, I'll list off for you some of the most famous ancient authors and I'll tell you how many combined references they have all together. If you combine all the manuscripts from Homer, Sophocles, Aristotle, Tacitus, Caesar, Aristophanes, Euripides, Suetonius, Demosthenes, Thucydides, Herodotus, Pliny, and Plato. If you add all of those together, you have about 800 total manuscripts. We have 24,000 of the New Testament. But you can imagine with this 24,000 that there's a, a, inevitably a number of different readings in the text. Things are written down differently across different times. So, so how then can we know what Matthew actually wrote? That's a good question to answer, and thankfully there's a good answer for the question. A lot of these little changes are in, are in fact little. Take a, a hypothetical example. So let's say that Matthew wrote a sentence, and he refers in the sentence to Jesus with the pronoun he. Now a scribe comes along later, 
And a scribe decides that his readers would benefit from knowing precisely who the pronoun referred to, and so he changes the word he to Jesus. It's a small change, but he does in fact change, he does in fact change the text. So, so small things like that are rather common, but why do we need to th- think about this? We need to think about this because we, are, because we are consistently under attack from antagonists to the Scriptures. An antagonist to the Scriptures will come up to you, Joe or Jane Christian, and they say, you can't trust your Bible. Did you know that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of changes in all your ancient manuscripts? In fact, one author says there are more differences in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And as those, as those charges are leveled, we have to be able to give an account for why this is true. So how do we resolve these differences? Because these differences are rather easy to resolve. Well, the way we go back, getting back to the matter at hand, the way that we resolve these differences is we go back to the earliest manuscripts. The earliest copies are going to have less time for errors to sneak in. That makes sense, doesn't it? If something is copied ten times, the tenth copy is going to be less accurate than the second or the third. And so you go back to the earliest copies and you see what it is exactly that was written. Now here's more good news. The earliest copies that we found of New Testament books date from about 40 to 70 years after the original authorship. To put that in perspective, the earliest copy we have of something written by Homer or Plato is 500 years after it was written. So we have good reason for confidence in the Bible. And so you go back to the very earliest manuscripts and you ask, well, what's the most likely reading? So you go to the earliest manuscripts to go back to our example. And let's say you have 10 early manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. And of those 10, nine say he and one says Jesus. Well, what's the original reading? The original reading is Jesus, problem solved. Now, why does this matter? We come back to the Lord's Prayer. And you go back to the very earliest manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel, and the Lord's Prayer ends with, Deliver us from the evil one. It doesn't end with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's in here because the authors of the King James Version had manuscripts that were a thousand years old. And those included the words, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Now, why would that have happened? Probably because you had a very well-meaning group of scribes who they read through the Lord's Prayer and they thought, that's kind of a crummy way to end a prayer. There's not even an amen on the end. right? We, we, can, we can do something to round this out, to fill this out a little bit. And so they added this rather pious-sounding final phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, should they have done that? Probably not. It's not usually wise to add to God's Word, but was it with a malicious intent? No, it wasn't. So these words almost certainly did not come from Matthew's pen or proceed from Jesus' mouth. So, so then why do, we, why do we preach this? Why do we pray this? Well, because the concepts are true. It's true that the kingdom belongs to God. The power belongs to God. And that the eternal glory belongs to God. And so even if the words don't come from Jesus' mouth itself, the truth comes from the Scripture. And since we pray these words, it's good for us to understand them. And so the very final words that we pray with the Lord's Prayer begin with the word for. And for is a purpose statement. 
It tells us the reason that we are praying all these words. And the reason that we are able to pray all these words comes in this final stretch. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. This is not just, uh, this is not just a prayer from emotion. We're not just praying, well, I, I hope it's true that you'll deliver me from the evil one. We're praying based on facts. We're praying based on what we know to be true about God. The, the very last question and answer of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question. I'll just give part of the answer. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creature, but from God. In other words, why do we pray? Because God is able to answer our prayer. Why do we pray? Why do we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Because God has the power to give us this day our daily bread. Why do we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Because God has the power to forgive us our sins, no matter how great they may be. God has the power to forgive sins. We pray because God is able and praise Him. He is willing to answer our prayers. And so we begin with four, but the very next word says, for yours. And this is a humble phrase. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We begin in a position of humility. We go back to that passage that we read from Psalm 103, the very first two verses, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. They say there are three things that are certain in life, change, taxes, and death. And the last of those three is an ever-present reminder of who we are and who we are not. We are not God. And so we begin with that phrase, for yours, for yours is the kingdom, we are immediately here, we are immediately confessing that it is not our kingdom. It is not our power, and we most certainly are not glorious. And so we begin here, for yours is the kingdom. It is God's kingdom, which reigns over all. It is God's kingdom, which is the great kingdom. It is God's kingdom, which is the ultimate kingdom. That's why we say that Jesus is king of kings. Are there other kings? Sure, there are other kings. Are there other kings like him? There are no other kings like him. That's why we say that his kingdom is the great kingdom. All other kings, all other nations, all other governments are bound and determined and destined to evaporate to end at some point. Only God's kingdom endures forever. And because His is the great kingdom, we owe Him perfect obedience. And we see that as well when we go to verse 19 of Psalm 103. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. What does that mean? It means that from the greatest person to the lowest person, from the most heinous sinner to the greatest of saints, every single person who ever lived, lives now, or ever will live, 
owes entire obedience and full worship to God because His kingdom is over all and He is a King who is over all. Everyone and everything owes Him everything. Even governments, even entire nations. We read that in Psalm chapter 2. We'll start in verse 6. As for me, says the Lord, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Not just individuals, but even nations, even kings, even governments have an obligation to live under the reign of God. And who is the king which God has placed as the king on the throne of his kingdom? But he has placed Christ on his kingdom. And he has given him, as Jesus says in the Great, in the great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And why do we go out in the Great Commission? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Because Christ is king, because his is the kingdom, then we go forth into all the nations. And all the nations, because Christ has all authority, owe Him perfect obedience, even governments. In fact, Paul says in Romans 13 that governments, kings, kingdoms, congresses, parliaments, are servants of God. The exact word there is deacons. They are deacons of God. And God gives government a specific purpose. And the specific purpose that God has given to government is to execute His will and to give justice to the, those who have been oppressed, to those who have been committed crimes against, and to deliver justice against the offender. That's the role. And whenever government fails to do its God-given duty, whenever it perverts justice, it sins as a whole against God. Christ is king over all things. Over you and me, this church, this village, this state, this country, and this world. His kingdom is over all. And all nations are required to submit themselves to him. We see that in the second verse of Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Yes, why do they? Our God is in the heavens. To rebel against our God is undoubtedly sin. That's what the psalmist says then in Psalm 99, verses 1 to 3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He, our God. He is the King. The Lord, remember this from the story of Elijah when he defeats the prophets of Baal and the fire comes down from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice which he had poured the water over. And when they see this great sight, what do they say? The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's what, that's what we say when we say, for yours is the kingdom. The Lord, He is King. And there is no other. And as we say He is King, He is a powerful King. For yours is the kingdom and the power. There is no power apart from God. 
Does that mean that there is no power? No, that does not mean there's no power. Does it mean that governments have no power? That's not what it means. It means that all power derives its source from God. God is the source of all power. If you have any authority, if you have any power, it is simply a delegated authority and power. But God is the one from whom things come. He created all things. And in fact, it is God who holds all things together. He holds all things together by Christ. R.C. Sproul says it, says it very famously, I suspect, among Reformed people. There is not one single maverick molecule in all creation. All power belongs to God. There is not one single thing that happens which God has not ordained and which is outside of God's ability to change if He had so desired. We read that in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. What does it say? He does whatever pleases Him. Isn't it true? He wants to create all things, He creates all things. He wants to flood the earth, He floods the earth. He wants to bless all the nations through Abraham, He blesses all the nations through Abraham. He wants to crush Pharaoh, He crushes Pharaoh. He wants to part the sea, He parts the sea. He wants to make the sun stand still in the sky, He makes the sun stand still in the sky. He wants to kill the giant with the stone from a shepherd boy and make that shepherd boy the king. That's exactly what He does. He wants to bring His glory into a temple, He brings His glory into a temple. He wants to send His people in exile, he sends them out there. He wants to bring them back, he brings them back. He wants to cause the barren, even the virgin, to conceive, he causes the virgin to conceive. He wants to raise the dead, even the crucified one, he raises the dead. He wants to send his gospel to the nations, he sends his gospel to the nations. He wants to make all things new, he makes all things new. He wants to save sinners, he saves sinners. Isn't that good news? Our God does whatever pleases him. And he saves sinners. We read that in Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be. Not might be. Not maybe. Not as the southerners say, Pastor John, might could be saved. Will be saved. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. God's kingdom is ultimate. God's power is is ultimate and then as we end God's glory is ultimate as well God is glorious but this is a hard thing to wrap our minds around and it has been for a long very 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 long time Moses wanted to ask the Lord who are you who are you and he got a, an answer I suspect he wasn't expecting the Lord said I am who I am it almost seems like you dodged the question and all the other gods, all the other persons, even human persons, can answer in a different way. Right? Who are you? Well, I'm a pastor. I live in Lansing. I have children. Um, I'm 34 years old, etc. Like we have things that we can say about ourselves. We can, we can speak of the other false gods of the nations. Who is Baal? Well, he's the fertility god who sends lightning who has prophets who give him all these different offerings and he has all these lewd ways of being worshipped he's he's defined everything else is, is defined by kind of what they are but not by who they are and why is that because we we change right if i say i am 34 perhaps unfortunately that will have to change in time to i'm 35 Right? And some of you at some point could have said, I'm 20, and now you're saying, I'm 84. Right? We change over time. 
I can say now I'm six foot seven. Actually, I had to say that a few years ago, but I've shrunk a half an inch. I'm six, six and a half now. You get the idea. We change. Who we are changes over time, but God doesn't change. So he can say, unlike any other creature or anything else that's ever been made, I am who I am. He is fixed. He is eternal. And everything that he has, he has, al- he has always had. And nothing that he will have has he ever not had. This is why the scripture speaks of God in ways like this. God is love. Notice it's not God is loving. That is true. But it's that God is love. God is light. It's not just that God gives light. Not only that he is the source of light, but that God is light. He is the embodiment of this. He is the very essence of this. And and the Lord says to Moses more about who he is in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. This is God speaking of himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and uh, on the inic- sorry, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Who is God? He is merciful and he is gracious, patient, loving, kind, and just. But it's not just that God is these things and that he does them, but he is these things in his person. You might say of yourself, I am a merciful person. And generally speaking, that may be true. But you are not the embodiment of mercy. You may say, I'm a loving person. But you are not the fountain and the source of all love. When we, when we act mercifully, or when we love, we are simply reflecting the character of God. Only God is in and of himself love. Only God is in and of himself light. God is wrapped up in these things. This is who he is. He is who he is. And then you go on and you consider and contemplate other glorious things about God, that God is self-existent. He has no beginning and he has no end. We read that earlier from Psalm 103, from everlasting to everlasting. If you can wrap a reminder on that, I'll be very impressed. As creatures, everything we experience has a beginning and an end. And we understand ourselves to have beginnings. And we see among us that at times people have ends. And we know that just like the passage said from the beginning of what we read from Psalm 103, our days are like grass and like a mist. Here today and gone tomorrow. But that's not how it is with God. He always is. He alone has immortality. Now we know that this must be. It doesn't, take a, it doesn't take a super genius to figure out that God has always been. For there to be anything, there must have always been something. And since we have personality, whatever always has been must be personal. Impersonality can, or personality can never come from impersonality. We understand the concepts. We can't really wrap our mind around the glory. Paul says more about this in 1 Timothy 6. Verses 15 to 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, this is God, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Do you see the uniqueness of God's glory? He is the only sovereign. He is the King of kings. These are superlative statements. There is no other sovereign. There is no one else who can be the King of kings because if someone else was the King of kings, then he could only be the King of some kings perhaps, but not the King of all kings. He is the only sovereign. He is the King of kings, and he alone has immortality. He is not like the grass, and he is not like the mist. He is not like today. As you get older, people always tell me this, as you get older, time goes faster. It's true, isn't it? And pretty soon, you might say, young moms perhaps particularly, the days are long, but the years are short. Some of us, the days aren't that long. Doesn't it seem, if you think about it, doesn't it seem like it's evening all the time? Another night has come. Another day has gone. And we know that every day that goes, we draw nearer to the end of our days, which God has numbered. But God has no numbered days. He alone has immortality. He alone has ultimate glory. And so because God has this ultimate glory, we give him glory. That's what we say. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. He has glory, and we give him glory. We must be very careful not to make a great mistake. When we say that we give God glory, we are not saying that we give him something he does not already have. When we say we give God glory, what we mean is we are giving him praise for what he already is. He already is glorious. When we praise God, we are simply saying what you are is worthy of praise. We're not making him great. We're not making him glorious. We're not telling him something he doesn't already know. We are simply reflecting back to him the glory that he already has. Our praise does not exist because God needs it. God could make a rock sing if he wanted to make a rock sing. We praise because it's good for us, not because it's good for God. We praise because that's what God has made us to do. God is glorious. And it is incumbent upon us, it is joyful for us to give God glory because He is glorious. We, we see an example of this dynamic between God being glorious and our giving Him glory in Psalm 104, the first four verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. Why bless the Lord? Why bless the Lord? Well, it goes on to give the why. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Now, of course, that, that's, that's the illustrative language. It isn't that actually God physically lays beams across the ocean what the psalmist is saying is bless the lord O my soul because god is and does things so great and glorious that we can only we can only grasp and reach for ways to describe the glory of our god why do we praise god why bless the lord because the lord is great and glorious he alone has this wonderful glory so why do we say why do we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? John Calvin helps to answer that. 
He says, not merely for the purpose of kindling our hearts to seek the glory of God. That is true, but that's not the only thing that's true. And not only for the purpose of reminding us what ought to be the object of our prayers, that is true, but likewise to teach us that our prayers, which are here dictated to us, are founded on God alone, that we may not rely on our own merits. Now you go back to where we started with humility. Only God has the king and the greatest kingdom. Only God has the ultimate power. And only God is ultimately worthy of glory because he is ultimately glorious. There is no pretending in prayer that we are something that we are not. True prayer begins, has a middle and an end, all with humility. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Jesus looks, Jesus looks at the sinner who beats his chest Have mercy on me, he says. He says, that's a true prayer. But the Pharisee who gives and who who lauds himself, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. He comes in pride. That's not prayer. That's prayer to himself, perhaps, but it's not prayer to God. When we come to what we say in the end of the Lord's Prayer, we come with an admission of abject humility. And if we come any other way, and we are not really praying at all. In fact, if we come any other way, we are sinning. Because sin has its root always in giving glory to something or someone else besides God. Giving to someone something that belongs only to God. But God alone is worthy of our prayers, and God alone is worthy of our glory. Paul says this in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Don't miss those last two words. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Those last two words were ripped right off of Paul's statement in Romans eleven thirty six. Forever. For your kingdom is forever. Your glory is forever. This is a good reminder for us that when we pray, we always pray with one eye on eternity. It's good for us to pray for our daily bread. It's good for us to pray that we'll be forgiven in the moment. It's good for us to pray that we would forgive others as well, to be kept from temptation today, to be delivered from the evil one today. That's good and necessary prayer but at the same time, we always pray with an eye to eternity. That even when the temptations have ceased, and when our need for bread is gone, and when the sins have been finally and fully forgiven, even at the end of the age, God will still be king with perfect power and perfect glory. We always pray with an eye to eternity. And that prayer, that kind of prayer changes us. It changes our priorities. It changes what we love and what we do. One of those favorite little poems I have, I think helps us to think in terms of the forever of our prayer. One life to live will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we think of this prayer, 
that final line, only what's done for Christ will last, should ring in our minds. For his is the glory forever. And what's done for Christ will endure forever. We begin with Jesus teaching us how to pray. And in this final phrase, we remind ourselves every time we pray why we pray. We pray because God is worthy of our prayer. And so, fittingly, let's close our time praying as the Lord taught us to pray. Let's pray. Our Father, you can pray along. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.